Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. One of this weekend's big stories was the referendum in Ireland. Voters chose to repeal the constitutional amendment that restricted access to abortions. Let's talk about the Ireland vote and global trends in reproductive rights with Dr. Gilda Sedge. She's a principal research scientist at the Guttmacher Institute. It is a research and policy organization that advances sexual and reproductive health rights in the U.S. and globally. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Gilda Sedge. Thanks for having me. Uh, You know, I was talking to an Irish journalist a few weeks ago about the upcoming referendum, and he said, you know, it shouldn't be a big surprise that things were leaning the way they went. Um, The country voted to legalize same-sex marriage in 2015. They've done all these things. They have been moving on this trend for some time. Uh, What did you get out of the vote? Uh, I don't think I was as sure as he was that it was going to go the way that it went. Uh, It's such a hot-button topic. Uh, I think that the way that it... The, the One of the things that we saw in Ireland that we tend to see in other countries as well is that there are ideological arguments in favor or against a particular law, for in particular the abortion law, but then there are public health arguments and there are stories of, of women that bring attention to... Um, the reality of unsafe abortion where it's illegal. And those more practical issues often take the day. You know, I'm kind of struck by how much you know, attention a, a referendum like this gets globally. And um, I imagine it. If, if you're in the business of reproductive health rights, um, the kind of global insertion into a referendum is um, – is, You've, you've become very veteran at it, I imagine. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in this country, we're all surprised that Russia's got involved in the elections last time around. And mm-hmm. uh, But in on reproductive rights, this kind of thing has been happening for a long time. Do you, do you have any kind of feeling when you think about a vote like Ireland's or other places that have um, kind of these high-level discussions – um, how much of a factor outsiders play in changing the results? I could speak to my impression of it. My impression of what happened in Ireland is that it was, it came from Ireland. It started with the Citizens' Assembly that was convened of 99 citizens who were meant to represent um, the people of Ireland who first took up the issue and they heard a lot of experts and some of those experts did come from abroad, but many didn't. They heard from a number of experts and they themselves came up with this recommendation that abortion be made legal in Ireland. Uh, and the I think that the deliberation that went on since then through um, the Joint Committee, um, Ireland's Congress, and the public debate seemed to me to be informed by the compelling stories that had hit the media of women um, in Ireland who had died because they couldn't obtain a safe abortion. Um, people knowing other women, either they themselves or their friends, having traveled to England to have an abortion because they couldn't obtain one in Ireland. It seemed to me an, an organic um, Ireland-led process. Immediately, people have begun talking about what is legal and not legal in Northern Ireland, where they have very mm-hmm. restrictive uh, abortion practices. Um, and it's really tied up in a political knot there. Um, we shouldn't expect to see anything like Ireland changing Northern Ireland anytime soon. 
A law change, I think, tends to come from a confluence of factors, and they, they vary from one country to another. So I, I don't know that we can look at a formula and see whether Northern Ireland has a chance of complying with that formula. Uh, one thing that's interesting about Northern Ireland is that they already their abortion law is already more liberal than Ireland's was um, before the referendum. In Northern Ireland, abortion is already on the books, allowed to preserve a woman's physical or mental health. And in Ireland, it was only allowed to save a woman's life. Um, so what could potentially change in Northern Ireland is the way that law is interpreted as they see what's happening um, in neighboring Ireland. Uh, for example, in Israel and in New Zealand, they have a similar law. Abortion is allowed to preserve a woman's mental health, and it's li liberally interpreted so that women can readily access abortion. Um, so it, it might not require as huge, uh, as huge a move for abortion to be made legally available in Northern Ireland. Uh, there's also some discussion about Poland, and I read an article in the Wall Street Journal about how Poland is um, looking at the referendum results. And there is a place that um, was uh, under the Iron Curtain, and in those days there was extremely liberal abortion laws, and today mm -hmm. their trend is towards more conservative abortion laws, and that the government um, has a lot of support. Um, but as a Catholic country, um, the Ireland model kind of stands out there for them. Yeah, and you know, Ireland was kind of an anomaly in the developed world, and Poland is another anomaly. So the majority of countries in the developed world already have liberal abortion laws. Uh, Ireland and three small countries were the only ones that had very restrictive abortion laws. Um, and... So Poland might go through it. What we see is that countries that tend to restrict access to legal abortion tend to be guided by ideological arguments, which is what we see in Poland, where the Catholic Church and Catholic ideology has moved them toward a more restrictive law. Uh, and whether they will move in the direction of other countries that tend to liberalize abortion laws on grounds of um, motivated by um, arguments to preserve women's health is to be seen. I'm talking with Dr. Gilda Sedge from the Guttmacher Institute about trends in reproductive health care in wake of the Ireland referendum over the weekend. Coming up in a few minutes, you'll hear about providing bail money to people who need it. Uh, I wanted to say something about the drop in uh, abortions in developed countries over time. I was reading the statistics and I was pretty surprised at how dramatic it's been. And uh, so if you want to have less unwanted pregnancies, you have to go at it with a toolkit that is uh, a lot of developed countries seem to have mastered. There is a, there is a way to do this. Yeah. In fact, the, lowest, uh, the countries with the lowest abortion rates in the world are countries where abortion is legal and has been legal for a long time. And the countries where the abortion rate has dropped the most sharply in the past 25 years are those where abortion has been legal throughout that period of time. Uh, the lowest abortion rates are northern and western Europe. The sharpest declines are in eastern Europe, where it, abortion had previously been uh, much more common. And a common element to driving abortion rates down or keeping them low is access to high-quality family planning services that helps women avoid the unintended pregnancies in the first place. And we're seeing a similar thing in the United States. The abortion rate has been declining since the early 1980s in the U.S., and it's during a period 
those declines preceded the wave of state-level restrictions that we've seen in the past few years. So that doesn't explain the decline in the abortion rate. And it seems to be women use and couples using more contraception, more effective methods of contraception, and in particular using methods more effectively, uh, doing a better job of using methods. And that goes with having access to not just contraceptive supplies, but counseling and information to help women use methods properly and use the methods that they want. And we see that the abortion rates are... Uh, on average, the same in countries with restrictive abortion laws and in countries with liberal laws, if you look, take all the countries of the world and put them in these different buckets. So it's not the law that seems to drive the abortion rate, the incidence of abortion, nearly as much as access to a means to avoid having unintended pregnancies. So in undeveloped countries, the rate is essentially flat for the last 30 years, while in developed countries, it's gone down. That's right. That's right. Um, And unintended pregnancy rates actually have gone down somewhat in developing countries. So we are making some headway in helping women and couples in developing countries avoid having unintended pregnancies. And the fact that the abortion rate is flat also speaks to the fact that women in or indicates that women and couples in developing countries are increasingly motivated to avoid having an unplanned birth when they get pregnant by accident. And it speaks to the fact that we, we and they, uh, the efforts to help women avoid unintended pregnancies are so far insufficient in low resource settings. I I wanted to get to what the United States is doing about this. Um, The Trump administration has uh, started with the global gag rule. Could you explain a little bit about how this might impact the kind of of rates that we're talking about here? Uh, Yeah, well, you know, the global gag rule prohibits um, international non-government organizations that receive um, assistance from the United States, prohibits them from using even their other monies um, to provide abortion counseling or services or referrals to abortion providers. Uh, There's very limited evidence, really, on what the impact of the global gag rule will be on the incidence of abortion. Some evidence that we have from um, during the Bush administration when a more constrained version of the gag rule was in place is that uh, the incidence of abortion increases in settings where the gag rule where um, the gag rule affects the provision of services because women don't only have less access to safe abortion, they have less access to contraceptive counseling and services and methods. But the evidence was not uh, definitive. And that was another era. So we really are curious to see uh, if that's the right, if curious is the right word, what the impact is going to be of the gag rule this time. Uh, um, How do you react to the idea of the gag rule? Um, A lot of countries uh, don't like, don't like kind of all these economic sanctions that uh, affect different aspects of what they want to do. And this seems to be one of them. Right. It's an export of our ideology to other countries. It's also an example of a policy that's driven by an ideology rather than by evidence, uh, because the evidence does suggest that making sure that women have access to reproductive health services, including family planning services, and including safe abortion care, will reduce first the incidence of unintended pregnancy and secondly, the incidence of unsafe abortion, because abortions as I said, are as common 
where it's legal as, as where it's illegal. And it's as common where women have ready access to services as it is where they don't have ready access to services. What varies is what kinds of abortions women have. Where do you think the global gag rule would have the most impact? In countries that re- that rely the most on U.S. Uh, family planning assistance, and those tend to be in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, where access to family planning services is already somewhat compromised, and to compromise that further would be uh, would. And that's where access to contraceptive services is low and where the majority of abortions are done under unsafe conditions. And so both of those situations are likely to be exacerbated. Uh, What's your impression of what's going on in Latin America? Because there's been some trends about criminalization of abortion in Latin America. Uh, Where do things stand now? There have been some stories of criminalization and uh, enforcement, strict enforcement of abortion laws, but they are part of the global trend. If you take in, if you take in all of the the information across all of the countries, a global trend toward liberalization of abortion laws. So, since two thousand, twenty eight countries have expanded the grounds for legal and abortion, and twenty twenty eight countries have changed the grounds for legal abortion, and twenty seven have made it more widely available. And only one, Nicaragua, has restricted the grounds for legal abortion. So things are moving in the direction of expanding access to abortion, even in Latin America. Uh, did you, what happened in Nicaragua? Could you explain a little more about that? Uh, well, in Nicaragua now, abortion is not allowed for any reason whatsoever, not even to save a woman's life. And that is one of a very few countries with that kind of restriction. Uh, and we don't know at present how many women are having abortions and what kinds of abortions, under what conditions are having abortions in that country. Did, did Nicaragua do that for a particular uh, economic reason? My understanding is that was, again, driven somewhat by uh, ideological arguments. And political uh, political mm-hmm. expediency there? Yeah, yeah. Um, what role do right-wing organizations have on reproductive policies in the developing world? Uh, things, organizations that um, are ideologically driven, are they able to get in there and make a big impact? They have... To speak in broad terms, they have a strong presence, to be sure. Uh, And again, we are seeing, despite that, a trend toward liberalization of abortion laws. And I think that is because the public health rationale is so much more compelling, particularly in those countries, even more so than in, say, Ireland, because in those countries, uh, women... Their maternal mortality rates are high, and many of the women who are dying are women who had unsafe abortions. And so it's much more real. In Ireland, women are able to travel to England to obtain a safe abortion. It's expensive. It's strenuous. It, they, they might delay seeking care. But in many of these other countries, developing countries, there is nowhere to go to get a safe abortion. And in fact, 7 million women in developing countries are treated for complications from an unsafe abortion each year. Uh, that, that's, a, that's a big number. Yeah. Um, now, I know the Guttmacher Institute and the Lancet uh, came out with a, a, with, um, a study with some implications, some ideas about um, the way forward here. What, can you explain a little what happened there? 
Uh, well, we did research together with the World Health Organization to estimate, first, the incidence of abortion worldwide, and secondly, the proportion of abortions that are done under unsafe conditions. And I've described some of those key findings, that abortion is quite common, that uh, more than 90% of abortions are done under safe conditions where it's illegal, and only one-fourth are done under safe conditions where it's illegal. And we've also put together a report looking at what has to happen after an abortion law changes. So, for example, in Ireland, it doesn't stop there with a new law. There's also the process of executing the law, and that entails providing guidelines that tells uh, that indicates who is legally allowed to do an abortion. Is it only the doctors? Is it also nurses? Uh, and that the process of training providers has to happen as well and integrating abortion services into uh, health care services. So it's not, uh, it's not just law and done. And in developing countries, that process can take years. And most of our samples from examples from recent years are developing countries because developed countries, for the most part, already have liberal abortion laws. So we will see whether it takes a very long time in Ireland or whether their stronger infrastructure allows these subsequent steps to take place at a more rapid pace. Dr. Gilda Sedge is a principal research scientist at the Guttmacher Institute. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the referendum in Ireland where voters chose to repeal the constitutional amendment that restricts access to abortions. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about providing bail money to people who need it. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Staggering numbers of people in prison are there because they can't make bail. The Believers Bailout Campaign is among the groups that are raising bail money for people who need it. They aim to bail out Muslims who need it during Ramadan. With me is Nabil Makbul, and she is coordinator of the Believers Bailout Campaign. Thanks for joining me. Hi. Um, tell me a little bit about the whole idea for this. Um, why did your organization, Believers Bailout, decide uh, we can do it, we can bail Muslims out of prison during Ramadan? Why was that a good idea? So Believers Bailout is a community-led initiative that was started by people in Chicago who recognize that there is something unjust about the fact that people are being held in detention, and we're trying to restore the presumption of innocence by allowing them to then go out and live their lives until they have their trial. So we're trying to fulfill what we see as the cause of justice that as is read under Islam. And so based on that, we encourage people to give their 
charity, which is Zakat. Their Zakat funds towards this cause because it's fulfilling two of its obligations. The first is relieving a burdensome debt, and the second is freeing someone from captivity. Explain a little bit more about Zakat and its role in Ramadan and how um, bailing people out of jail works with Zakat, because I think most people probably don't, it it doesn't register. So Zakat is one of the five pillars of Islam, in addition to things like fasting, doing the pilgrimage, um, there is paying a portion of tax on your wealth. And so what we're encouraging is for people to pay that portion of their tax towards this cause. We're also trying to, we're doing this and focusing on this issue to make sure that Muslims understand that there is an issue of mass incarceration within this country, and it's affecting not only all of the people in the country, but it's fo- it's affecting brothers and sisters that we have who are burdened with you know poverty and an inability to pay to get themselves out of detention. Now, the this is something you've just uh, started during this Ramadan season, and how is it going? It's going actually amazingly. We have, I think, over $30,000 that we've raised since the beginning of Ramadan, and so that's the first stage is getting enough money. And then the second stage is we're going to be um, bailing people out as we get requests. And uh, how how are you? How sure are you that there are people there who need your help? Um, we do know we're working with a lot of different community organizations. We also have a lot of contacts with people who do um, support work within jails themselves, and we know that there is a need. And that also, when Muslim people are incarcerated, they face an anti-Muslim racism. They also are predominantly facing a lot of um, anti-Islamic, um, you know, incursions on their ability to practice while they're in detention. And so we really want to focus on this um, racist uh, element and trying to make sure that people get free. With you is one of the people you've been working with, and she's uh, Irene Romolo. She's Director of Advocacy at the Chicago Community Bond Fund, and they are an all-volunteer organization that helps people get bond bail money, too. Thanks a lot for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Uh, tell me something about Chicago Community Bond Fund. So the Chicago Community Bond Fund um, started in 2014 when the Chicago Police Department killed uh, Deshaun Pittman and later on at a vigil arrested uh, family members of Deshaun who were mourning his death. A lot of them, actually six of them, were eventually incarcerated, uh, charged with felonies and had to post bond in order to you know, get out. It took a while to raise all of that money, but once they did, it was decided that, you know, the family members didn't want other people to have to go through that to know that, you know, family members are mourning, are incarcerated, and are only incarcerated because they can't pay their bond. So CCBF started as part of that, um, and our goal is really to eliminate the use of money bond and pretrial incarceration. We uh, do this, we have a revolving fund that where we raise money to bond people out of Cook County Jail. So far, since 2015, we've bonded out about 100, I think it's 146 people and we've um, bonded, used uh, close to $800,000 to like post that bond. But we know that that, you know, that is just the primary thing that one of the things that we do to address the harm caused by pretrial incarceration. But we know that we can't bond everybody out who's incarcerated at Cook County Jail. So part of our work is also engaging in advocacy and policy change efforts where we work with the people that we've bonded out to, you know, highlight the impact that pretrial incarceration has not just on the people who are incarcerated, but also their family members, and to really advocate for the end of money bond. 
you're, you're on your website, you've got the examples of people you've bailed out, and they're really interesting because I don't think, you know, probably when people imagine what this is like, uh, the, they don't understand fully what happens to somebody who cannot make bail. Uh, but there's a lot of examples on your website. Tell us about some of these people. Yeah, so a lot of the people that we have bonded out, you know, we work with them to share some of their stories. One of our members, Lovett Mays, is somebody who, you know, is really committed to making sure that people know what she went through. She's somebody who was incarcerated for 14 months pre-trial. You know, she was accused of a crime. When you're incarcerated pre-trial, you're still you're still innocent, right? You haven't been proven guilty of committing any crimes. And, you know, during those 14 months, she she was close to losing her home. She lost her business. She was close to losing her children. And then after those 14 months, she still had to you know, spend some time under house arrest, under electronic monitoring. So for us, like Lovett May's story is one that, you know, really shows the impact that pretrial incarceration has, not just on the individual, but also, you know, all of her children, her family members who had to deal with, you know, their primary caretaker being incarcerated pretrial. Um, so those those are the stories that we want to highlight and that we want people to recognize that pretrial incarceration is something that harms not just individuals, but their entire networks and that other conditions of release are also, you know, create challenges for people who are still like presumed innocent, but who are trying to, you know, stay employed, to stay in education programs, to even have health benefits. And these conditions that we're setting prevent people from having access to to those things. For people who cannot really make bail, don't have enough for bail money, and that's an enormous portion of the population, it seems like the bail money is always uh, too high for many people to meet. But these people to lose their jobs on top of that seems uh, harsh. I mean, and it's example after example on your website is uh, people losing their jobs when they. It, 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 we have a system that almost seems to be creating uh, vulnerabilities, uh, increasing vulnerabilities among a vulnerable population. Yeah, the use of money bond is essentially punishing people for being poor. And another thing that happens, and which is something that actually happened with Lovett Mays, is that she was forced to take a plea deal. Often people who are incarcerated pretrial in order to, you know, just be released will accept plea deals and will, you know, then have a conviction on their record, which has a lot of implications when they're when they're out. And right now, you know, we've made a lot of great steps uh, here to eliminate the use of money bond with the issuing of General Order 8. 188A last year, but there's still a lot of work to do. From January until March, we know through data that was released by the Chief Justice that 54% of people who were issued money bonds in Cook County still have not been able to pay them. So they're still incarcerated, which translates to more than 3,000 people in Cook County Jail who are incarcerated only because they can't afford to pay their money bond. So we've made a huge step, but there's definitely a lot of work to do. Um, how many people have you identified um, that are Muslims that you could work with here on on this particular Believers Bailout Campaign project? So we've identified a lot of community organizations that are working with us. So Sa- Sapelo Square, Empower Change, um, Surat, which is a nonprofit in Hyde Park. And through these community organizations, we're meeting all these individuals who are trying to help us. So we have 
different phases of the project. The first is going to be this fundraising phase. The next is identifying people who can be bailed out. And the way that we're identifying people is a similar model to the Chicago Community Bond Fund. We're looking for individuals who are particularly vulnerable. That means that they are they have disabilities, they might be per- further persecuted on the base of their race or their gender or their religious practice. They're going to lose their benefits as a result of being detained. And so after we identify these individuals, it's not as if we just want to bail them out and then let them go on their way. We want to provide as many social services in a holistic method as possible. So each person, just the same as the Chicago Community Bond Fund works, each person is going to be paired up with someone who will help them navigate because being bailed out is just the first stage. You still have to figure out, you know, what services do I need? What services have I lost? Do I have a job? Or do I have guardianship of my kids? Um, am I integrated into my community? And so this is a mindful practice where we're trying to challenge this kind of mass incarceration by providing the community resources um, and the networks that are necessary to bring people back. Um, I was reading some statistics about how this system works, the bail system works in the United States and then in the world more broadly. I I guess, you know, in Illinois, you mentioned uh, we had this um, more progressive uh, legislation that has made Illinois a little better than some other states. But on the whole, the United States is doing something with bail that um, almost all other developed countries have done away with. They don't they, they just don't do it like this. Yeah, well, the U.S. incarcerates the most people out of, you know, any other, you know, developed country in the world. And here in Cook County, Cook County Jail is one of the biggest single site jails in the United States. And in the state of Illinois is where most people are incarcerated pre-trial. So that's in, in more than 90 percent of the people who are incarcerated at Cook County Jail are incarcerated pre-trial and most of them on unaffordable bonds. So it's a very big issue that you know, we're trying to deal with here in Illinois, but also various groups across the United States. And why is the bond uh, so high that people cannot make it? If you were a uh, judge and you were at a, at, you know, at a spot in Cook County where you knew that <laughs> there were too many people who couldn't uh, pay their bond, why would you set it so high? So a lot of, you know, Judges are supposed to be setting bond amounts in in, in amounts that people can afford. That's what the General Order 188A says for Cook County judges. Essentially, the system, you know, what it creates is that when a judge sets a monetary bond, it means that, you know, the person is safe to return to the community, right? They should be allowed to return and fight their case from a place of freedom. But by setting bond amounts that are so high, like people can't afford them, they end up being incarcerated essentially, you know, overstepping the no bond hearings that people are actually supposed to be getting if a judge determines that, you know, they sh- for one reason or another, they should be incarcerated pretrial. So it's a way to use money to keep people in jail. And unfortunately, some of these um, attempts to reform the system are still perpetuating a form of bondage that's reliant on money. So a lot of people are now being shifted over to electronic monitoring. So, but that is a process where people are restrained in their homes um, and they have to pay for all the attendant fees of the electronic monitoring. And then they still can't access any of the services, their employment, they can't leave their house. So it's just a different form of incarceration, but the incarceration is even more invisible. They're being locked up while they're at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nabila, how do people get more information about uh, the uh, 
Believers Bailout campaign. So you can look us up. We're at uh, believersbailout.org. We're on Twitter at Believers Bailout. We have a Facebook page, we, and we have a launch good. So if people are interested in helping contribute to the fund, and please reach out. If you know anyone who might be eligible, please reach out as well. We're looking forward to making as many connections as possible. And Irene, uh, people who want to know more about the Chicago Community Bond Fund, you have a website too. Yes, you can check us out at chicagobond.org. We also have a Facebook and a Twitter page. Irene Rumillo is director of the advocacy, advocacy director at the Chicago Community Bond Fund, and Nabila Makbul is a coordinator of the Believers Bailout Campaign. Thanks for joining us, and good luck on your project. Thank, Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about peace building with education and literacy. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. There's an opportunity for you to get involved with peacebuilding this Saturday. Rotary International is having a peacebuilding conference with an emphasis on literacy and education. It's taking place at the South Shore Cultural Center on Saturday. And with me is Lyle Staub. He's a member of the Rotary Club of Long Grove, Kildeer, and Hawthorne Woods. Nice to meet you, Lyle. Hello. And Patricia Merriweather-Argus is uh, the chair of the Peace Through Education Literacy Conference and a member of the Naperville Rotary. Great to see you. Thank you. Great to be here. I wanted to say something about Rotary International. It's um, such a cool organization, and it was founded here in Chicago in 1905, and I think it's um, more probably more popular outside Chicago than inside Chicago, even though there's plenty of clubs here. But uh, the, how does it work? How did you find out about Rotary? Well, it's it's a you, you're right. It's a worldwide club and uh, organization with 1.2 million people in almost 200 countries. So anyways, I I was born and raised in Chicago, uh, lived there for about 25 years, uh, went to school probably about three miles from Rotary and had never heard of it before. I was asked to go to China after 9-11 to on an ambassador program, not connected to Rotary. And I came back to Naperville where I uh, was living and live now And somebody said, why don't you come and talk to our Rotary Club about your experience? And I said, what's Rotary? So it is a a best-kept secret. We're trying to change that. Uh, We think bringing together all the people, not only from around the world, but also locally, on the wonderful initiatives they have underway for peace building and to get the word out there that we are there, we are in the community, and uh, we'd love for people to join us and uh, just grow Rotary. Lyle, how did you get involved? 
Well, I'm from Western Kansas. When I was a high school student, I was invited to attend a Rotary meeting uh, just as a way for them to, uh, to, I think, impress upon us what Rotary was actually doing. I moved a lot. And I never had the time to join Rotary until 2006 when I joined Rotary when I was living in Dublin, Ireland. And uh, after moving back here, I got very involved in, in the organization. The thing about it is um, it seems like it's been true to its roots since 1905. It is a grassroots. People in your community, they do, they do things in your community and they do things globally. It is. Um, there's, as we were talking, 1.2 million people, but they're in 36,000 uh, clubs around the world. Uh, so it's an opportunity to get your hands dirty, uh, to make a difference in your community, and also ex- to explore worldwide um, different initiatives. And um, I, I know you've had Chuck Newman on before yep. with Schools for the Children of the World, and uh, we've gone on many trips together, uh, building schools and hospitals and communities around the world. Uh, Rotary is probably best known for the polio campaign, which has been you know, a terrific effort and, and a pretty darn successful one at, at eliminating polio around the world. Um, but the, you have this peace-building uh, theme going this time around, and uh, the president of Rotary International, Ian Risley, Riz- uh, has decided to make a theme about peace-building and getting more people engaged in it. Um, explain what happened here, Patricia, and what, what his idea was. His idea was uh, we have six areas of focus, you know, such as education, disease management, water, things like that. Uh, but they're all focused on how can we make a better world? How can we address some of the social injustices and, and do it through, um, you know, clear pathways? But peace is really the pathway that we're all on. Uh, You know, you provide good education, access to education, safety for education. That leads to people that are knowledgeable, can communicate with each other, and understand the value of peace, uh, of living in peace. So it's a worldwide initiative of Rotary uh, to build peace around the world. And as you know, they have uh, peace scholarships. Uh, They offer up to 70 peace scholarships around the world um, for anyone to study for a master degree program or a certificate, and they cover that. Um, and so we're building. It's really one of the largest scholarship programs in the world. Um, what, what kind of things are you doing this weekend that are going to um, catch people's eye and, and uh, that you're going to focus on here? Well, I'll talk about the peace building, and then I'll I'll turn it to Lyle for the Rotary UN. Uh, The peace building, we have people coming from around the world, uh, uh, local, national, and international, to talk about uh, interventions and programs that they have that are making a difference for for youth, for older uh, older people, uh, (laughs) uh, in terms of peace building. Uh, But we also um, have people coming from around the world. You know, Chicago is a global city. And so they are coming from Nigeria, Ghana, Nepal, India, and they're all coming to learn about what's going on in Chicago, what works in Chicago in terms of the peace initiatives and the organizations that are making a difference. Our goal is really to inspire people uh, to take a pathway to peace. Uh, to connect with other organizations. Uh, We have a group from 
Jordan that's coming that's now in 50 countries working towards peace, generations for peace. And we also want them to take action. So it's not just come and listen. It's roll up your sleeves and go back to your locations, uh, you know, make some headway on peace building. And it can be peace building through education. Uh, you know, we want to provide them with tools on restorative justice, uh, a conflict resolution, and then also teaching peace. I, now, you've got two components, and the, you're, you're mainly describing the one for community leaders and Rotarians, people who want to come and get involved. There's a day-long uh, series of panels and breakout sessions and plenaries. And there's also something for young people. Um, and Lyle, tell us a bit about what's happening with young people. Well, because the conference is focusing on education and literacy, we wanted to include student voices in the program and to give an opportunity for them to get some leadership uh, uh, training. And Rotary has a long relationship with the model or with the UN. Um, it was at a meeting of Rotarians in 1942 in London that the seeds for UNESCO were planted. And there were 49 Rotarians that were delegates to the conference that established the UN. So Rotary is one of the few organizations that has a permanent mission at the UN in New York. So doing something on, with a model UN and the students was really the answer for what we wanted to, uh, what we wanted to take on. So uh, the young people, you've got how many coming to, uh, this Saturday? Well, we'll have about 175 uh, delegates and advisors. They're from 23 schools, and they're in the Chicago area, the Rockford area, and then we've actually some coming in from Texas as well. Uh, they're going to represent 44 countries, and we've assigned those countries to them. They are uh, researching it to see what the social issues are, the political issues, what their ideologies are as far as religion, uh, what their economic situation is. And then we're going to ask them to speak to two resolutions that have actually been presented at the United Nations, both having to do with youth and peace building. Oh, it sounds terrific. And Lyle Staub is with the Rotary Club of Long Grove, Kildare, and Hawthorne Woods, and he's describing the peace conference that's taking place on Saturday at the South Shore Cultural Center. And Patricia Merriweather Argus is the Rotary International uh, Presidential Peace Through Education Chair of the conference. Um, this is um, something you want people to come and get engaged in. You want people to uh, be a part of peace building in our community and in our world. Um, that's a pretty great thing, and uh, we're lucky to have the conference. It's um, one of only six that are going on around the world uh, that Rotary is sponsoring. Tell us about the, the larger framework. Uh, the larger framework is uh, there. Uh, President Risley uh, had uh, six conferences identified. So they're in places such as. And you're talking about Ian Risley. He's the head of Rotary International. He's from Australia. Yes, he's from Australia. I'm yes. wearing his tie. I know. <laughs> he, I saw that right away. <laughs> he handed out ties at an event that I was at. Um, I, I moderated a panel discussion. Mm -hmm. I got an Ian Risley tie. It says Rotary making a difference on the back. Ian Risley, President, Rotary International. That's that's what's going on. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> he, and he's wearing it. I wore it because he was wearing it on your conference website where he makes the little pitch. He's wearing his mm -hmm. his his, uh, his Ian Risley tie. It is. He's very impressive. He'll be there the entire day. 
day. Um, this is his conference. We have about 28 uh, presenters at the conference. And uh, this, is, this is unique because it is in Chicago. We have two resolutions coming up uh, that the students will be voting on. One is on peace and um, access and safety to school. And the other is on uh, engaging, and this was done by the UN Security Council in uh, 2015, is to have youth involved in uh, peace settlements and conflict resolution at a national level. And that was supported by all the countries. So we've got a little bit of ways to go, and we thought we'd start paving our way through this conference and getting the youth, the voice of the youth, to the table. That's great. Um, are there particularly ses- particular sessions that you are interested in, you're anxious to see, you're looking forward to especially? Um, oh, I love them all, but I, I will <laughs> tell you, um, you know, we've got Peace Fellows there, uh, r- some of the Rotary Peace Fellows, Scott Lang, uh, with the U.S. State Department, um, who's worked in Kosovo and Sarajevo. So and these Bos- are people who've gotten the scholarship mm-hmm. and have gone out mm-hmm. in the world and made good. Mm-hmm. Two, two producers of this program have received a Rotary Scholarship. Oh. Oh, two of them. Okay. I think I know one of them. Uh, McGuire? <laughs> yep, Dave yes. McGuire. Yes, I he do. He works I... for the BBC now. Oh. He's okay. making peace with the BBC now. <laughs> uh, and, and then there's some other, you know, the whole program, but um, there's some interesting ones because we're looking at education, not just at a, a um, early childhood but saying, okay, people that have had, um, uh, I, and I know your last speakers talked about incarceration and jails and that, but people that have been incarcerated and coming out of jail, we have Xavier McElrath Bay, who's a phenomenal speaker, and his experience, his life experience in Chicago was, um, you know, something that, again, you never want to have repeated with he's, another child. He's co-founder of the Incarcerated Children's Advocacy Network. Yes, it's a shame we have to have something like that. It is, but it's when he's spoken before to Rotary, uh, it's like people are spellbound just listening to him and hearing his experience. And then he talks about what he's doing now So, because he has a belief that no child is born bad. And somehow we have to create the environment to support all children. And it sort of reminds me of um, uh, back in 1994, Eric Morse. I don't know if you remember him. He was the, he was the five-year-old that was um, dropped from the top of Cabrini Green uh, oh, yeah. as his brother looked on, uh, could not do anything. And by a 10-year-old and an 11-year-old, and it, it creates the thought of what are we doing as a society to help our children, our most precious commodity, and and our futures. Uh, And so that's why this peace building is so important, is to give people the tools and the ability to uh, resolve conflict and to also restore justice to anyone that has experienced an issue. So... um, I can't say enough about some of the speakers. They, they'll bring you to tears. Uh, it's a reality check on where we are. And then you'll be inspired by those that are just excelling with initiatives and programs. Lyle, is there anything in particular you're looking forward to this weekend? Well, it's a great opportunity, I think, for students who wouldn't normally get a chance to go to a Model UN to participate. As a matter of fact, That was the focus as we were selecting schools, and they're able to attend really because of the generosity of the local uh, clubs and the Rotary Foundation. 
those students will debate the two uh, resolutions that Pat talked about. And then at the end of the day, representatives from those uh, caucuses are going to be on stage with President Risley and with Scott Lang uh, to talk about their process, to present their findings, and I think just to answer some questions from him about how young people will respond to some of the things that perhaps came up in the other conference. I think that's going to be really impactful. Well, um, it's been terrific talking with you about all the things that you're doing in Rotary International's Peacebuilding Conference this Saturday. Uh, it has its own website. You can't show up at the door. You've got to register beforehand. Um, what do people do? I go to rotaryliteracy.org and just go to the registration, and you can register, and it's $55 per person, and that covers your meals, breakfast, lunch, as well as all the meeting material and snacks. What's been the best thing about being a Rotarian? Um, meeting people all around the world and people like you. <laughs> That's terrific. Yes. Yourself? You know, it gives us the opportunity to matter because so many people, the world doesn't know they're here and it won't notice when they're gone. For those of us who want to matter, who want to make this a better place, this is a great organization in which to make that happen. Lyle Staub is a member of the Rotary Club of Long Grove, Kildare, and Hawthorne Woods. Patricia Merriweather Argus is a Rotary International Presidential Peace Through Education Literacy Conference Chair. And you can attend at the South Shore Cultural Center on Saturday, Rotary's day-long event of a peace-building conference. Check out the information at rotaryliteracy.org. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank Thank you. you. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk with James Clapper. He's been making a lot of headlines. Uh, The former intelligence official is having a little to and fro on Twitter with the president, and we'll chat with him tomorrow on Worldview. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Gal Lee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview from WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.